I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. My guest today is the fabulous actor, producer and songwriter Rita Wilson. Her film appearances include Sleepless in Seattle, That Thing You Do, one of my favorites, Runaway Bride, It's Complicated, and she has produced a whole bunch of movies, including the smash hit My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the Mamma Mia movies, and the new film A Man Called Otto, starring her husband Tom Hanks. Rita also co-wrote with David Hodges and co-sang along with Sebastian Yatra the theme song for the movie Till Your Home. She's also performed on Broadway and appeared in a whole bunch of great TV shows, including The Good Wife and Girls and... As a singer-songwriter, Rita has released five albums, most recently Now and Forever, an album of duets with a whole bunch of amazing artists, including Jackson Brown, Smokey Robinson, Josh Groban, and Willie Nelson. Great to catch up with you, Rita. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Always a pleasure, Nick. It's been a while since we've actually seen each other in person. We'll get to the music question shortly, and I really want to talk about A Man Called Otto. But maybe we can catch up a little bit first. I know that you and Tom were unfortunately among some of the early folks who contracted COVID while you were down in Australia three years ago while Tom was doing the uh, Brad Lerman Elvis movie. Fab movie, by the way. How did that time impact your outlook on life and affect your work and projects over the next couple of years? Well, I, I, I really think that, you know, anytime you're encountering any sort of a health scare, that uh, you do think about how you want to spend your time. And the truth of the matter is, I think everybody was having those same sort of conversations in their heads, but it was it really to just spend more time with family and to pursue creative things that really mean something. And um, just that we, we realized that I think so many of our uh, daily lives that we could slow down. There was something very good about taking those pauses, um, whether they were, you know, imposed on us or or not, uh, just to be able to have that time to sort of reflect and uh, think about life. Let's talk about A Man Called Otto. As, uh, as this podcast goes live, the movie just expanded uh, from limited release to nationwide. How did the project come to you, first of all? Uh, and then let's speak about the theme song, Till Your Till Your Home. The project was uh, I, I I just feel so so thankful for it. The Academy used to send out screeners, DVDs, and you'd mm. they'd come in these sort of packets. And this packet was the foreign film packet. And uh I pulled, I read the synopsis of the movie. It sounded very charming. And I thought, oh, let's, let's watch this. A man called Ova. And we put it in. We're watching it. And I just was so taken with it because it was great characters. It was incredibly well-written. It was about something deeper. And yet it had comedy. And... I had been, you know, Tom and I over the years have had many discussions about comedy and why isn't he doing comedy? And he got, you know, his start in comedy. What's that? Why is it, you know, that he hasn't done them of late? And really, it always came down to it's very hard to find projects that are funny, but that are about something. You know, I can't see him doing some kind of, you know, 
road trip, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And he himself has said he's aged out of the romantic comedy. Um, nobody's even writing those anymore. But um, as I was watching it, I, I had that feeling that maybe, oh my gosh, just based on material, I loved it. But maybe this is something that he would be interested in. So I turned to him and I said, I, I love this. I, I think that I got to try to make the right this into an American film and you got to play it. And, you know, I looked over at him. We were watching the movie and, you know, there you have the movie glowing, the movie light glowing on his face. And I looked over at him and he was thinking he wasn't saying no. So, you know, the next day I called up and found out who had the rights. And it just so happened he was in L.A. that week. My mm -hmm. Swedish partner, Frederick Wickstrom Nicostro. And uh, we took a meeting and I told him, you know, I'd love to make this movie. Tom said he wanted to star in it. And, you know, he was being very cool, like, oh, OK, yeah, I'll think about that, you know. And basically, he's like, I can't believe I just got a call from you know, people saying Tom Hanks wants to play this guy. So it was we were both being very like, gosh, it would be great to do this, wouldn't it? And so we, uh, we agreed to make the movie together. As, as you mentioned, uh, the original movie's Swedish. I often wonder this when movies are originally done in a different country or a different language. The writing of the adaptation and the people that you have to get in to, to do that. What kind of process is, is that? Well, for me, it's always about tone. Sort of, we knew that this, uh, I wanted it to be funny and I wanted it to be about something deeper. And the tone, there are so many different tones when it comes to comedy and the treatment of that, that if you don't get that right, it can ruin everything. And that's everything from what the film looks like to the screenplay to the casting to the execution and the direction and i loved david mcgee's work in finding neverland but also in uh, life of pi and i thought that he was able to capture that wonderful pathos and the themes of loss and grief so beautifully that i felt he, as a writer, would be doing it uh, justice. Mark Forster, our director, had directed Finding Neverland. And he's someone who has such a huge range, you know, from Quantum of Solace and World War Z, mm. the James Bond movie and that huge, you know, World War Z, to Stranger Than Fiction. And that movie, to me, Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson, what I loved about that was its grounded comedy, that there was a truth to it and an authenticity. And I knew that Mark and David had worked together and that was a really good experience for both of them. So when Mark said yes, that became a very exciting moment where we knew, okay, we're all on the same page. And truly, I, I think as a producer, that's what you're trying to do is create that creative family so that Everybody kind of thinks alike about it, and we all want the same things. Can you just give us very quickly for people who haven't seen it yet? Obviously, I don't want to give give it away, but just a very quick synopsis of the story. It's uh, about a man who one might look at superficially and think he's just a jackass and mean and unfriendly, who has lost his faith in the future. 
until he meets this wonderful family that moves in next door, this fantastic Mexican family. And uh, I, I really think it's about community and it's about really the things that join us more than separate us and how there's always something to live for. Let's talk about the song that you co-wrote for this movie, which uh, really sort of en encompasses a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about. How did that come about? First of all, obviously you're a producer of the movie, but I would expect that uh, you've, you know, if you're going to write a song for the movie, the director's going to have to be on board with it. And you told me that the director actually asked you to, to write a song for this film. Maybe you could take us through that a little bit. Yes. Uh, Mark Forster, our director, uh, was familiar with my music and my albums. And he asked me one day at a pre-production meeting. He didn't ask me. He just told me in his Swiss German accent, I think you should write a song for the movie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this would be a fantastic uh, thing. I would love to do that. And the songwriter in me was just thrilled. But the producer in me <laughs> was sort of thinking oh gosh, this could be so awkward and so uncomfortable. Like, what if he hates the song? What yeah. if he doesn't like it? Then what do I do? And so I said to him, all right, let's look at it this way. If you don't like the song, you have to tell me and there will be no hard feelings and we can continue writing until you find something you do like or we'll find other writers and don't worry about it, but we'll we'll make it happen somehow. And he said, okay. And later, months and months later, he told me that he had a horrible experience where he asked someone very, very well known to write a song for a movie. And the mm -hmm. person said yes. And he was thrilled. And then the song came in and it was not at all what he was envisioning yeah. for that movie. And he had to tell this person no. And this person was very upset. <laughs> so poor Mark, you know, he was like, Maybe I spoke too soon. I don't know. So I went to David Hodges because David, who um, was the founder of the band Evanescence and also had written, we had written together on an indie movie called Boy Genius. Mm. That uh, that song was called Sometimes Love. And I, I really liked working with him. I liked the creative process with him. We had done a couple of songwriters events together where we were on the same sort of panel and i went to him and i just thought what would we write this together would you like to mark our director knew very specifically where he wanted the song to go in the body of the film and he was very adamant that it was a song that could sound as if it was from many different periods of time like was it a 70s and 80s and 90s is it modern day what where is this song he wanted it to feel like very not of a time. And David and I were talking about these conversations when when someone is not in the room or they're, you know, you're waiting for them to come home or in a case you you may never see them again, that all these things that you get so excited to tell them about. And this led to a remembrance I had of when my father died and our friend, the film director, Mike Nichols, said to me when my dad died, the conversation continues. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing and really came to understand what he meant about that the further away 
you know, I got from my dad's passing. And of course, then my mom died and then friends died. And mm. I kept thinking the conversation continues because I kept talking to them and hearing them answer me, not in a sense of like I'm hearing voices in the sky, but it was a connection to them that doesn't fade. And that was a very um, comforting thing and a very beautiful thing to sort of take us into the deeper parts of the song and writing the song. Also inspired by David McGee's script and Frederick Buckman's book, because there are things in there that are very subtle, but that refer to the stories without it being really right on the nose. You know, songwriting is just one of those things that is very mysterious, and it's a process that requires utter trust. You have to trust in the process and trust in what will come. And I think that's the most beautiful things about, about it all. I remember when David, the first, we wrote it over a few sessions, and after the first session, he said, I'm just going to put something down really rough on the guitar and I'll, I'll send it to you. And uh, I heard it that night. I was like, this, this is feeling right to me. And then got up the next morning and I called David and I said, I, I don't know. Maybe you have this experience and I don't, but this feels right to me. And he felt the same way. So at least I knew that David and I were on the same page when we were writing it. And then afterwards, like, you know, I guess songs are like babies. You're going to love them all. But this one just felt like it was something that felt right for this project. It's it's interesting when you can align your creativity with your your inner self, right? Like you talk about conversations and ongoing conversations, perhaps with people who are no longer here. And as right. we get older... There are more of those people, right? I mean, our, our parents leave and friends leave and, and all that yes. kind of stuff. And a, a lot of people have such a hard time with with grief and understanding what to do next. I, I think it's really interesting that you were able to sort of put this into a song. You know, I know that David was going through some, some hard times um, around that time and some loss. And I think growing up, because my parents had very uh, challenging childhoods. Uh, I'm a first-generation American, and my mom and dad both had to leave their countries. My dad escaped communist Bulgaria. He escaped a labor camp and risked his life to come to America. My mom did a very similar thing when she left Greece. And I think, you know, my mom left her village, and so did my dad. And they never went back for like 40 six years and to leave the home that you've only known and just with whatever you could carry on your back and in my dad's case he had nothing because he was leaving a, a labor camp i i heard those stories as a kid and it wasn't as if my parents were telling us this because they were traumatized by it they were telling us these stories because they were the truth and i think my own imagination took me to places that I thought, well, that's got to be absolutely one of the worst things that could ever happen. If you're a kid and you're like, what if somebody comes and says, you have to leave your house right now and you have five minutes to gather up what you're, what you want to take with you, what would you take? Hmm. And what would, you know, what would you carry on your back? And my mom had this sterling silver uh, flatware 
And uh, she brought that with her, you know, that was like a family heirloom. And I still have that silver and very thankful, you know, for their journeys and their, their strength and their courage. So I'm guessing when you're writing songs, you're not necessarily thinking about short lists for Oscars or uh, other awards or anything like that. But this song has been uh, shortlisted for, for the Oscars. So is that something that you do think about or is that just something <laughs> that's a bonus? It's such a bonus. You're like, it's so exciting. You, you think about it because somebody tells you your song just got shortlisted, but at the same time, you're like, okay, thank you for that information. But when you're writing the song, you don't think about that. When you're writing the song, you're thinking about how am I going to say what needs to be said for this very specific moment in the film? And you hope it just reaches people and it you're giving the director what he wants in, for this moment. But it's pretty amazing. You cannot, can't lie about that. It's great. Yeah, well, congratulations. And uh, thank you. And good luck with that. Thank you. Let's get to my little questionnaire that I ask all of my guests. Okay. What is your first musical memory? There was a lady who lived up the street from us. I grew up in Hollywood and she worked at Capitol Records. And on the days that the Beatles released albums, she would bring them to us. And so we had Meet the Beatles on the first day that it was released. And I remember the sheer excitement of being able to take it out of its thing and put it on the hi-fi, which was, if people remember, a hi-fi was a turntable, a TV, and a tuner, all in one piece of beautiful wood cabinetry. Yeah, piece of furniture. <laughs> piece of furniture. And so, you know, everybody had to take turns on being able to drop the needle. And, you know, of course, my older sister had more of the clout on that because she was older and she wasn't going to scratch the album. But then we would sit on, you know, in front of those speakers and just listen to the Beatles. You know, my, my dad worked in TV, uh, regional TV in the UK, in, in Birmingham. And uh, my earliest musical memory, You and I Appears, was of him bringing home, home the promo 45s of, of the Beatles and him, yes. and him and my mom dancing around. And I'm like five and I didn't know what it was. All I knew was it looked exciting. Exactly right. Right. That's it. What was the first music you bought with your own money? I'm trying to think. I can't really remember because what we did was we would go down to, there was a place on Sunset and Vine called Wallach's Music City. And you would go there and imagine it, it was a store, but today we would think of it as an iPod. <laughs> because you'd go in there, you'd rifle through the album covers, you would find something you liked, you would take the album cover to a booth that was in the middle of the store and mm -hmm. you'd say i'd like to listen to you know rubber soul and they'd say okay and they would get the vinyl for you somebody would come place it for you in a booth now you're in your own individual booth you'd put mm -hmm. on headphones drop the needle and that's how you heard the album to decide if you liked it before you bought it so i listened to so many albums uh during that, my parents would take me down there. But I don't remember what is the first one that 
that we bought. I mean, I remember loving like traffic. I remember Jethro Tull, <laughs> Aqualung, that album. Um, but that, that's what comes to mind. I, I can't, re- there wasn't like one specific moment. I'll get to the, I know my first concert though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to jump into that next, but just very quickly, I think you and I were having the same experience about 7,000 miles apart because (laughs) that's, that's how I remember first listening to music in, uh, in the original Virgin Records, uh, not the one in London, but in in Birmingham. So yeah, let's jump into your first concert experience. Well, with or without your parents? Without my parents. I was in high school and it was Led Zeppelin. I guess we must have been 16. Mm. Uh, I might have been a bit younger, but maybe the girls I went with, they're two twins, Rose and Carol O'Connell. We were both, um, we were all cheerleaders at Hollywood High School. And we went to see Led Zeppelin at the Forum. And let me just set the tone. These girls were gorgeous, about 5'11", identical twins, red hair. I was maybe five, I guess I must've been my height now, five, seven. And my mom made me my outfit, which was drawstring bell-bottom pants that the fabric was turquoise and blue Hawaiian print, like vintage Hawaiian shirts that they Mm -hmm. used to make. And then the top was a short-sleeved crop top that you would not sort of like in front of you and so full midriff exposed, really tan because it was California and sure. our screen was called baby oil and iodine. And um, my shoes were these shoes called corkies. They were these cork wedges. And we were all so excited that we were running to from the car to get there so that we could see the opening act and everything. And I fell flat on my face running in those oh, damn no. wedges. <laughs> Uh, didn't stop me still went to the concert <laughs> I, I love that you remember what what you were wearing i uh i was talking to uh, sandra bernhard on this podcast a couple of weeks ago and uh, love her. And, and and she's fabulous and and she too remembered what she was wearing for her first concert because you dress for your first concert exactly yeah 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 <laughs> do you remember the feeling of being in the venue do you remember the feeling of the totally of the music and no doubt Led Zeppelin, it was loud. Oh, it was loud, but it was Robert Plant. It was Stairway to Heaven. It was Jimmy Page. It was the smell of weed. It was the, you know, lighters, you know, being held up when, you know, when the audience would do that. I felt very grown up, very mature, very like, oh, I'm a full-fledged teenager now, but I'm really a grown-up. They're calling me a teenager, but I'm a grown-up. It's a pretty good one, Led Zeppelin first out. Yes. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Oh, it's like right now, different things. Uh, but right now for contemporary, I'm listening to Lizzo, I'm listening to Beyonce Renaissance. Uh, you can never go wrong with Bruno Mars. Uh, I love... Anything, you know, all of the great R&B and soul from 60s and 70s. Stevie Wonder, Temptations, Al Green. Oh, my God. Marvin Gaye. You can't go wrong. Just fly in the family stone. That's a great list. 
What do you listen to if you feel sad? And are you somebody who sort of, you know, goes into it with the music or plays music to get out of it? I'm a songwriter that if I could only, if they said you could only choose one kind of song to write for the rest of your life, I'd be like, sad songs, please. <laughs> right. Tell me sign up in the sad song group. <laughs> I love sad songs. I love tear jerkers. I love, oh my gosh. So what do I listen to? It just depends. Sometimes I will go back in time. I think Adele seems to nail that, you know, if you really want to cry and you got to get to it quickly, just go straight to someone like you. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not hard. <laughs> if you could only listen to uh, one song for the rest of your life, and I know that's a, that's a terrible thing to think of, but if, you know, if somebody said there's only one song, what would it be? You know... When I saw that question, I thought, how am I going to answer this question? It's so hard. But maybe A Case of You by Joni Mitchell. My gosh, I played that on the radio today. I heard it. I heard it. So good. Yeah. But I, I do love that song. It just never, it's so detailed or maybe blue, but I think it would be A Case of You. There's, um, there's an yeah. orchestral version of that that she did about 20 years ago, and I can't remember what album it's on obviously the original is on blue but there's another version of that where there's strings and all sorts of stuff on it i don't know if you've heard yeah of it. there was um you're right it was about 20 years ago i went to see her at the greek theater and she did that with an or orchestra and it was absolutely riveting yeah it's completely phenomenal. riveting yeah just beautiful and then there was the herbie hancock album that was fantastic. That won the Grammy not that long ago of uh, her music, which was beautiful. You know, about 12 years ago, um, uh, on, a, on a side note here, I was writing a monthly column for the then Los Angeles Times magazine, which they had in the, in the Sunday paper. And uh, there was a music issue, which I was editing, and they asked me to come up with some, you know, unique features. And I set up for Beck to interview Oh. Joni Mitchell, which I thought would be phenomenal. And I had been out of town, I think. I don't know where, but I was coming back in on the morning of the interview and I was hosting the interview, obviously facilitating it at some hotel in, in Westwood. And on my way there, I got a call that Beck was sick and couldn't do it. And so you can imagine the panic because... Total panic. Joni's already there. Um, oh, gosh. And I've never met her and I'm nervous. And I had to walk in and say, hi, I'm sorry to say this, but Beck can't do the interview. Are you okay if I did it? And she was so lovely, so generous. Oh, man. We, we spent about a half a day hanging out in some room with a, a big photo set up with a famous photographer taking pictures as well. And I, I had given up smoking at the time, but she was smoking, you know, American Spirit Yellow. And I was like, well, I've got to have a cigarette with Joni Mitchell. But yeah. No. Don't tell me. Did you pay? Did you have a cigarette? Oh, of course. Yes. I'm sitting there with Joni Mitchell, Jane Smith, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a little little side story. She is fabulous. And, and uh, that's definitely a career highlight for me. Oh, yeah. Do you have a, a favorite music video? Well, you know, there was one that just impact. It made such a huge impact when it came out that I have to say that I still see it copied 
over and over and over again in live shows, in video, in different formats. And I'd have to say it's Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. Oh, yeah. With all the, the girls? Yeah, with the women playing the the um, instruments and dressed kind of the same. And yeah. uh, that was a great music video. Very 80s. Very of the time. As I probably is when we hang up, I'll think of a million other videos, but I did love that one. Do you have a, a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? And I always like to add, it doesn't have to be anybody necessarily new, but somebody whose music is new to you. I heard, I don't even know where I heard it. I can't remember now, and I'm looking it up to make sure I can get the... Uh, the person's name right. It was this version of The Winner Takes It All, an ABBA song, mm -hmm. acoustic, by a young woman called Mac Loren, M-A-C-K-L-O-R-E-N. And I just thought it was beautiful. I loved it. Well, I shall have to check that out. That sounds like she might be Swedish, right, Lauren? I don't know. I looked her up, and she's, I think she's from New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> yes, I think she's from New Jersey, which, as you know, has a pretty good track record when it comes to musicians. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it also has an Ikea right next to the airport when you land at, at Newark Airport. Anyway. Always helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a band or an artist that you love, but feel perhaps they never quite got the big break they deserved? Now, this goes back a long time, but I, I think that his music is very classic. And, and I might be argued with that people say he didn't get a, a big break, but I think that his music is beautiful. And it's J.D. Souther. You know, he wrote so much for the Eagles, for Linda Ronstadt. He dated Linda Ronstadt. And he just has beautiful songs. And his albums where he sings his own hits, which he didn't do until maybe 10 years ago. Right. Because he, he, he just never wanted to record his hits that had been done by other people. He finally did it. And I thought that, it it was so beautifully done and very tender. And um, I mean, obviously he's a very successful songwriter, but there's something about hearing him sing his own songs the way he would have envisioned them that I think is very powerful. Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't know his name, yet they would know his songs. Right. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? A musical guilty pleasure. Well, perhaps I'm biased because, of course, I love them so much and they're not, they're not even guilty because they're artists. And of course, you know, but I think ABBA is just pure joy, just pure joy. You cannot be in a bad mood when you hear ABBA. So that's probably why Mac Loren came up because it's like, Oh, you know, they're like, if you like this, you'll like this. <laughs> it's, it's, Some it's, algorithm told me I liked ABBA, yes. Um, but recently was in London and saw ABBA Voyage, which is their live show, which is absolutely 
incredible. If anybody in London listens to this, go see this show. It's ridiculously good. That was actually going to be my next question based on what you were just saying, because uh, the reviews on this show, it's uh, avatars, but with a band as well, right? Is that, is that correct? Maybe you can describe it, yeah, it a little bit. It, exactly. There's a live band on stage. Mm -hmm. They're avatars, but it's so well done and the production values are extraordinary. I don't want to say much because I went in knowing very little and it was the best way to go in and see it. Just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I would love to see it. Hopefully I'll get a chance to see it next time I'm uh, I'm over there. I'm a big ABBA fan as, as, as well. And I will tell you that when I was 15, 16, when they won the uh, Eurovision Song Contest, and I, I saw those two girls yeah. on, top the, on top of the pops. I was in love straight away. And uh, I mean, just hits after hits after hits. Obviously, you, you worked on Mamma Mia, so I'm pretty sure that you know a whole, whole bunch of uh, trivia about the band that I don't. But did you ever see that Australian movie they, they did where there's a, a guy who sort of follows them around Australia in an early sort of mockumentary kind of thing? No, what's that called? Check it out. I can't remember what it's called. I'll figure it out before we get off the. Oh, uh, please! I'd love to know that. It's it's nuts. You just imagine ABBA in Australia in like 1976 or something. It is it's kind of crazy. It's a lot of fun. No problem. ABBA in Australia. Okay, uh, that's what it's called. <laughs> ABBA in Australia, 1976. <laughs> wow. Yeah, check check it out. You know, it's always a pleasure to, to hang out and, and talk with you and definitely to talk about music. And I always wrap up the, the interview and the conversation with one last question, and that is, how are you feeling right now? Feeling pretty good, a little bit tired because we've been on this uh, like month long, over month long press tour for uh, the movie mm. and the record, but feeling pretty grateful and pretty calm and centered. So happy about that. It was great talking with you. Thanks for joining me on The Sound of Thank Success. Thank you, Nick. Really appreciate it. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>